Well, if you would, turn with me to the book of Revelation. We'll be in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. We're going to continue in our series today about the seven churches that are addressed in the book of Revelation. We began this series several weeks ago, and thus far, we've looked at the churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum, and today we'll be looking at the church in Thyatira, who is addressed in chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. So read these verses with me, and let's, let's listen carefully to what the Lord has to say to us this morning. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end, to him, I will give authority over the nations, And he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. I want to begin this morning by telling you a story. It's a story about a king and a queen who lived a long time ago. Now the story goes that this king and this queen were appointed by God. God had put them in place to rule over his people with justice and righteousness. He had put this king and queen on the throne of his kingdom to carry out his good purposes. But rather than doing what God had called them to do, this king and queen 
turned away from God. They rebelled against him. And instead, they devoted themselves to false gods, to idols. So God sent messengers to this king and queen. And these messengers appealed to them. They called them to repent. They warned the king and the queen to turn from their idolatry. But tragically, the king and the queen did not want to listen. In fact, they had these messengers killed. So great was their idolatry and sin that they would not tolerate anyone who stood in the way. This king and queen, they were tyrants. And if that weren't bad enough, the king and queen turned their tyranny against an ordinary guy who was just minding his own business. I mean, this guy wasn't causing trouble. He wasn't stirring the pot. He wasn't making a fuss. He was just living his life. And yet, seemingly out of nowhere, the king and queen have him killed. And it makes you think, why on earth would they do that? Why would they do such a terrible thing to an innocent man? Well, they wanted him dead for no other reason than they desired something he had. See, this man owned a vineyard. And the king and queen wanted that vineyard. They were covetous. So they took the man's life and they unjustly seized his property. At this point, it probably won't surprise you to learn that the story of this king and queen is found in the Old Testament, in the books of First and Second Kings. The king's name was Ahab, and he goes down in history as being one of Israel's most wicked kings, which is not a good reputation to have. The queen's name, however, is the most important part of the story, at least for our purposes today. Her name was Jezebel. And in many ways, she was a significant influence on her husband. She egged him on. Rather than appealing to Ahab's better judgment, she encouraged him to engage in these sins, in the sins of covetousness and murder and idolatry. She played a very real part in those things. Because of that, her name has become synonymous with the influence of evil. Which is why Jesus uses her name here in this passage. He refers to the source of wickedness in this church that he is addressing. He refers to that source as Jezebel. Because just like Jezebel in the Old Testament, there was a so-called prophetess in Thyatira who had forsaken the true God by turning to false gods. And she was influencing other people in the church to do the exact same thing. Jesus wouldn't stand for that. He wouldn't share his glory with idols. Like if you zoom out and look at the scriptures as a whole, Jesus is very clear about this, that idolatry is not something that he will tolerate because he is jealous for his glory. There's only one true and living God. And he alone deserves honor and praise. But the other reason that Jesus is so intolerant of idolatry is not just what it is, but it's also what it does 
Like when we allow idolatry into our lives, when we allow idolatry into the church, it destroys everything it touches. Which means that what we are worshiping is a matter of life and death. Like if we choose the gods of this age rather than worshiping God in Christ, we are choosing death, friend. It's just like what Moses said in the book of Deuteronomy as the people of Israel were on the threshold of the promised land. Moses declared to them, two options stand before you. Option A is life and option B is death. For us as the people of God, this has not changed. We are at that same threshold today. The very same choice stands before us right now. We still have to reckon with option A versus option B. Which makes what we're doing here today, this worship service, it is a matter of life and death. Because we must either choose the way of Jesus or we will end up choosing the way of Jezebel. So that's what this sermon is going to be about. Here's the big idea we're going to unpack, that the church lives and dies by one confession. and It's the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you boil it all down, that's the message that comes through in these verses. Jesus Christ, we sang it a moment ago, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. At this point in our text, if you've been following along with us in the book of Revelation, there's no question about this. I mean, Jesus already, he already established this back in chapter one where he told us, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. What does that tell you? What is Jesus saying to us there? He's saying that he is the undisputed, unquestioned king of kings and lord of lords. So the only question that remains for us to ask this morning is what kind of king is he? What kind of lord is this Jesus that we worship here today? Well, I think there are four things in this passage that will serve to answer that question. This text reveals the lordship of Christ in four distinct ways. So let's dive in and look at each of these ways so that we can know more of who this Jesus is. First, this passage shows us that Jesus dominates every false god. He dominates every false god. Right out of the gate, verse 18, Jesus refers to himself as the son of God. Now that title is important in and of itself, but it's particularly important for this passage because Thyatira, the city that that Jesus is writing to, he's writing to Christians in Thyatira, which was a very religious city. It was a city of many gods. It was not a big city. And it wasn't the most important city in the Greco-Roman world by any means. But one thing that did make it unique is that Thyatira had an extensive network of labor unions that played a major part in civic life. And each of these labor unions 
had its own sort of patron deity. And so all the people who lived and who worked in Thyatira, they would hold, they, they would get together and they would hold these feasts and these celebration, celebrations in honor of their God. Their gods, the different gods in the city. And these feasts and these celebrations would more times than not include sexual immorality. You would witness, if you were to walk into one of these celebrations, you would witness all kinds of lewd behavior. And this makes sense because one of the deities that was prominent in Thyatira was Diana. Diana was the goddess of fertility. So you see the link there, right, between sexual activity and fertility. Another deity that was notable in Thyatira was Apollo the god of the sun. And Apollo was known to be the son of Zeus, who, of course, in the Greek religion was the god of thunder. And so because of all this existing in the background, it makes perfect sense that Jesus would want to refer to himself as the son of God right away. He's putting himself in contrast to Apollo and Diana and these other gods. And he's saying, I am the son of the living God, not some puny lifeless idol. Apollo might be the son of Zeus, but Christ is the eternally begotten son from the father. Jesus also mentions that his eyes are like a flame of fire. Once again, this just goes to show how different Jesus is from all these other idols. This is highlighted in Psalm 115 where it says that the idols that the world worships are made of silver and gold. They are but the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. By contrast, Jesus has eyes that see everything. He overlooks Nothing, there is not one thing that happens in heaven above or on earth below that escapes his vision. One glance from him can penetrate into the unseen depths of the human heart. An idol can't do that. Though an idol may appear to have eyes, it sees nothing. But the omniscient retinas of the Lord Jesus can see everything. Verse 18 also reiterates that his feet are like burnished bronze. I mentioned a few moments ago the labor unions that played a major part in Thyatira. Some of these unions were known for producing and exporting bronze. But the purest bronze that could be found in Thyatira could not even come close to the majesty and the worth of Christ. Not even his feet. Right? Those, those feet that, that walked those dusty roads of Galilee are worth infinitely more than the most precious materials that can be found on the face of this earth. And those same feet will trample upon every idol that sets itself up against the living God. You can be sure, friends, Jesus will dominate them all. And so let us put them all away. 
Let us cast them all aside. If there is anything, any idol that is luring your worship and your affection away from the Lord Jesus Christ, it must be abandoned immediately. This is what, tells, was what we're told at the very end of the letter of 1 John chapter 5. It says, little children, that's us. We are the children of God. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. We need that exhortation. We need to hear that. Because so often we grow comfortable with the idols in our midst. We grow numb to the damage they are causing to us and to others. Oftentimes, they are suffocating us and killing us, and we're too busy to even realize it. We grow desensitized. And so we need this Jesus, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, to break into our lives and shake things up and make us uncomfortable. We need his majesty and his glory to awaken us from our sleep. So that we might see him for who he is. There is none like King Jesus, friends. Every idol that is raised up against him will be crushed beneath his feet. Just you wait. It's only a matter of time. But not only does Jesus dominate every false god, he also delights in everyone who serves him. That's the second aspect of his lordship that's revealed in this text when we obey Jesus when we serve him by faith he delights in us if verse 18 highlights the majesty and worth of Christ above every other then verse 19 highlights his loving care and attentiveness to his people just look at what he says he says I know your works I see your love and your faith. I take note of your service, your patient endurance. And I know, I know, I know you are excelling in good works. The good works that you are doing today exceed the good works you were doing yesterday. It's like it says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. Those eyes that are a flame of fire, they see your good works. They see the love that you have shown. They see even the smallest deeds of faith, which is why Jesus told his disciples, you don't need to practice your good works in order to be seen by others. You don't need to do good works to impress other people. No, because when you do good works, your heavenly father sees you. He sees the good works that you do in secret. He sees the good works that you do in obscurity. He sees the good works that you do that are hidden from the eyes of the world. And he takes great pleasure in them. So friends, we not only need to put away idols. We need to devote ourselves once again, once again to good works. We need to devote ourselves to good works with all of our hearts. I mean, this is part of why Jesus 
came to be our Savior. Paul tells us in his letter to Titus that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Truly, I I wonder if some of us today have grown quite discouraged. I wonder if you have lost your zeal for good works. Maybe you've recently had the thought, I don't know that anything I'm doing for the church is making a difference. Like I show up when I'm supposed to, I, I do what's asked of me, I lend a hand to help out in, in this area of ministry that I'm serving in. I, I don't know that it, it matters for anything. I don't know that it's making any real impact. Listen, friends, if that thought has entered your mind as of late, then let verse 19 sink into your heart today. Your good works, the things that you do to serve this church, they matter. They matter more than you could ever know. Listen, I sincerely hope that you're being thanked and appreciated for what you do. If you're not, then we're failing at something. But I sincerely hope you are being thanked. But even if no one else breathes a word about it, Jesus has something he wants to say to you. He has something he wants you to know. He says, I see you, good and faithful servant. I see your labors. I see your faith working through love, and it brings me great delight. At the end of the day, that's why we do good works. It's why we get up early and show up before anybody else comes to move heavy equipment. It's why some of you spend countless Sundays crammed in a tiny room with like 17 screaming kids. You don't do that because it's the first thing you feel like doing. You do that because you want to bring joy to the heart of your king. So hear me when I say to you, friends, this is Paul's exhortation to the church in Galatia. Do not grow weary in doing good, for in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of I know many of you are tired. I know many of you are discouraged. I know many of you felt like sleeping in today. But hear me, don't lose heart. Because Jesus sees all that you are doing. And it brings a smile to his face. In fact, he is smiling upon you, his servants, right now in this moment. Unfortunately, looking at the very next verse, things take a turn. Verse 20, the smile of Jesus fades from the church of Thyatira. We've seen that he dominates every every idol, every false god. He delights in his servants and the works that we do in his name. But because he is Lord, it has to also be true that he detests wickedness. That's the third thing. Jesus says to this church, I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. 
as I suggested earlier, the name Jezebel is not the real name of the person that Jesus is talking about. Instead, this name is more descriptive, like he's using it to describe the person who he says is a false prophetess. Now, let me be very clear about something. There are people who would read this text. They would see the name Jezebel and they would say, see, the church hates women. It's right there. Like this woman is in the church and she's speaking her mind. And this letter shows up and shuts her down. The church must really hate women. The Bible must be anti-woman. But that is not at all the spirit of this text. That's not what's happening here. Like if you zoom out and look at the scriptures as a whole, there are like dozens and dozens of instances where women play a significant role in the plans and purposes of God. So like this, this rebuke that Jesus is issuing here, it's not a rebuke against women doing important things for God. No, not at all. It is instead a rebuke against a specific woman in a specific church, specifically because of what she is teaching. She claims authority. She claims the authority of a prophetess, but she is saying things that flatly contradict the will of God for his people. Jesus says, look at what she's doing. She's, she's teaching and seducing my servants. She's leading them to practice sexual immorality and to eat food that is sacrificed to idols. If you were here last week, that should sound pretty familiar. <clears throat> because... The issues in Thyatira were pretty much the same as the issues in Pergamum. In both cases, the church was being lured away from Christ by sin and idolatry, and they're being called back to Christ. And Jesus has given them plenty of time to come back. He's given them ample opportunity to turn away from these things. He says, I gave her, I gave Jezebel time to repent. I waited. I waited. I wasn't hasty. I didn't rush in to judgment. This is what scripture is talking about when it says that our God is slow to anger. Right? His character is such that he doesn't fly off the handle anytime we do something wrong. The scripture tells us in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. But he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Listen, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not following Jesus, I want you to hear me say, God desires your repentance. He is being patient with you because he desires for you to turn away from your sin so that you can come to Christ in faith. But here's the thing about that. The truth is that one day, it will be too late for you to do that. There will come a day, and it will come. There will come a day when it will be too late for you to repent. But as far as we know, that day is not today. No, God stands ready and willing in this moment to receive you. If you will only forsake your sin and turn to Christ. Tragically, though, that, that's not how it always happens. It doesn't always happen that way. 
Jesus says of this Jezebel and Thyatira that she refuses to repent. She refuses to turn from her sexual immorality. So Jesus warns this church about what's going to happen. He says, I will throw her, Jezebel, onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. Wow, that's severe. And here's why Jesus gives this very severe warning. He tells us why. He says, it's because I want all the churches to know that I'm the one who searches your hearts and your minds. And I am the one who will give to each person according to their works. What Jesus is saying here is the same thing he said in Luke chapter 13. Repent or perish. Repent or perish. Those are the only two options that lie before every human being on the face of this earth. Remember what I said at the beginning. Remember what I told you. This is a matter of life and death. If we don't turn away from our sin, right? If we don't do an about face and run to Jesus, then there is judgment and ultimately death. That awaits us. Because our sin must be paid for. And it will be paid for. Jesus says this in verse 23. I will strike her children dead. Why would he say that? Why would he give a warning like that? It's because the wages of sin is death. And those wages will be paid for. They will either be paid for by Christ on the cross, or we must pay for them. The only difference between Jezebel and everybody else, anybody who's in Christ, the only difference between me and Jezebel is repentance. Jezebel and her friends refused what Jesus is offering. They flatly refused. The question is, will you? Will you refuse him? Will you refuse to repent of things in your life that do not please him? Have you been putting that off? Have you been dragging your feet? Have you been coddling some pet sin in the deep recesses of your heart? Even as Christ asks us that question today, his eyes are searching to and fro throughout this room. He's searching every heart that is here today. This is exactly what he tells us, isn't it? He says, I'm the one who searches your mind and your heart. Emmaus, I think the only appropriate response to that is to get on our knees and pray what the psalmist prayed in Psalm 139, where he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way within me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's why we spent time confessing our sins this morning, friends, because we want to invite Jesus to do that. We want to invite him and say, God, 
Whatever you expose in my heart, I want to repent of that. I want to turn from that. And I want to give my life to you. The word of Christ to those who don't repent, not easy to swallow. I know that. I know it's a hard word. But, to his, but his word to those who do repent, oh, it's, it's so sweet. It's so beautiful. Just listen to what he says. He says, come to me. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, doesn't that sound better than Jezebel's sickbed? Like if we, if we cast ourselves on Jesus, we will by no means be cast into tribulation. No, when we repent of our sins, he invites us into his rest. He invites us into a life that is not cumbersome or arduous. No, through repentance, we get to fall upon the kind, gentle arms of Jesus, our Savior. We get to unburden our hearts from the guilt of our sin. We get to take the crushing yoke of wickedness and trade it for the easy yoke of Christ. This is what Jesus is getting at in verse 24. He says, To the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to Jezebel's teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Listen, it's true that some of us have been avoiding repentance. And if that's you today, you need Christ to come into this room right now and unsettle you. But there are also those of us who are leading lives of repentance. Maybe you're here today and you've been obeying to the very best of your ability. You've been walking as faithfully with the Lord as you can. You've been abiding with him. You've been crucifying your sin by faith. And I pray that if, it's, if, if that's you this morning, that what you hear from Jesus is a word of rest, a word of encouragement. He does not want to burden you, friends. Life in this world is hard enough as it is. He has no desire to add to that. He doesn't want to discourage you. He's here to make the load lighter. He's here to take it upon his own back. So that you can keep going. Right? He wants to free you to keep running after him. In the obedience of faith. And that brings us to the final way that the lordship of Christ is revealed. He declares his promise to all who obey him. Look back at the last few verses of chapter 2. Verse 25 says, only hold fast what you have until I come. To the one who conquers, keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit sang to churches. 
You keep repenting. You keep obeying by faith. If you do not give up, if you conquer, then Jesus says that one thing you're proving is that you are royalty. Our confession is that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the king of the nations. He reigns and rules over all times, places, peoples, and events. There is not one square inch of this world that does not belong under his authority. All authority, he says, in heaven above and on earth below belongs to me. That's what Jesus says. And yet, and yet, he is not stingy. He does not hoard his privileges as our king. No, he is supremely generous. He freely gives us a share in the blessings of his royal status. Just as he reigns and rules, so we will reign with him. Just as he has been crowned with blessing and honor, with glory and power, he will set a crown upon our heads. Just as he has been enthroned upon the high seat of heaven. So he invites us to join him there, even now. Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's what it says. Did you catch that? We are, not we will be seated with Christ in heavenly places. No, in a very real sense, we are already there right now, seated with him. Right here. Right now, you are living by faith, then you are a co-heir with Christ. It's who you are, friends. The untold blessings and privileges of his royalty, he now shares with you. So you may come into this place today with empty hands. You may come into this place with empty pockets. An empty bank account, not two nickels to rub together. You may have no accolades or renown to your name, but listen, don't be fooled by that. Don't be fooled by worldly appearances. There is more to you than meets the eye. One day, it will become clear that you are a royal child of God. You are glorious in Christ. You are blessed with the riches of heaven. And it's all because Jesus has made you those things by grace through faith. C.S. Lewis talks about this when he says, it's a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. I've felt the way that C.S. Lewis talks there. I felt like my life is like that. Like, there's nothing interesting about it. Nothing spectacular. It's nothing special, my life. Maybe you feel that way too. Ah, you know, my life is, it's nothing special, right? If you're in Christ, though, just wait. Just wait. What you truly are will be revealed. You are a future ruler of the universe. Jesus said so. That's the promise he has declared over your life. You will rule with him as he rules with a rod of iron. 
The other promise he mentions is that he will give us the morning star. I think this is actually the most precious part of the promise because what is the morning star? <laughs> it is Venus, yeah. <laughs> that was great. That's true. Excellent point. In the book of Revelation, though, um, if you like turn, if you turn to the, if you turn to the end of the book, chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus says, I am the root of David. Listen to what he says. He says, I am the bright morning star. Venus is the morning star. But Jesus is the truer and better morning star. He's the eternal morning star. Jesus is saying, I'm giving you myself. I'm giving you me. All that stuff about reigning and ruling and having crowns and thrones, all of that is great. But without Jesus, it doesn't mean a whole lot. Not in the scope of eternity. No, what makes the thought of our future so thrilling is that we get the presence of Jesus. We get to experience that beatific vision that we so often talk about, which is the, the future reality that we will see Christ face to face. We will see his glory and we will be transfixed by him. We will be transfigured to join him in being as he is in that glory. That is the eternal life that awaits us with him. And that's what I've been telling you. The confession that Jesus is Lord really is a matter of life and death. As a church, we really do live or die based on whether or not we believe what Jesus has said about himself. And so the choice lies before us today. What will we choose? Will we choose life? Or will we choose death? As you leave this place, what will your decision be? Will you turn from your sin and submit your life to the lordship of Christ? Or will you continue in the ways of Jezebel? Will you refuse him? The way you answer that question will actually determine what happens next. Just a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And this table is one important way that we know who has chosen life. When we step forward and when we take the bread and the cup into our hands, we are proclaiming what we've been talking about here this morning, that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is a meal for the church where we get to show the world who Jesus is and what he has done. In the bread, we remember that his body was broken for us. And in the cup, we remember that his blood was shed so that when we eat this bread and drink this cup by faith, we are declaring his death until he comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And on that day, when that happens, every knee will hit the floor and every tongue will declare what we have declared today, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of our God. And Father, if you have not reached the point where you're ready to make that confession, then we ask you not to come to this table. This table is only for those who confess what is true of Jesus. Because listen, 
Listen to what Jesus has done. He has come to us. He has drawn a circle around himself. And he has said, everything outside of this circle is death. But step into the circle with me and you can have life. So instead of coming to the table, if you're not a Christian, we want to invite you into that circle, Jesus. We want to invite you to step over that line. You can, you can do that today by turning from your sins. That's what we mean when we talk about repentance. That is turning from your sins, turning from how you've been living so that you can turn to Christ in faith and receive the life that only he can give. For those of us who are standing with Jesus and who will come to the table, We'll ask you to do that beginning in the front row here. We'll move to each row till we reach the back of the room. Everyone will come down the aisle on this side of the room and walk across the front here and receive the bread and the cup table. Before we do that, though, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Would you lift your heart to God with me as we call upon him together? Jesus, we gladly confess you as Lord today. Forgive us for the ways we've not walked in the truth of who you are. You've been so gracious to freely offer us life at every turn. But so often we find our hearts drawn to the sins and idols of this present evil age. Lord, we ask that as we come to your table today, that you teach our hearts to desire you more than anything else. Grant every person here in this room repentance that leads to life. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Church, would you come to the feast? Jesus is waiting for you.